Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. Okay, recording yeah, okay. in progress. Okay, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Recording in progress. <laughs> Welcome to Chickstree, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women written out of them. My name's Annie, and over there in Zoom land is Phoebe. Hello, ta-da, it is me. Hello. Um, we're doing something a bit different. We're recording a little bit different. We're trying out the Zoomsies because we're having some issues with our audio. Technical you issues. You may have noticed. <laughs> You may not have, but little Miss OCD over here did. <laughs> as long as you can hear our dulcet tones, that's all that matters. Yeah, mm. I think I think this is going to work. If yeah. not, do you know what? We just re-record and that's fine. Exactly. We've done it before. We're we not, can do it again. <laughs> we're not pretending to be experts, you know. Some days we just come to record and nothing goes right. Oh. And we just go, right, tools down. <laughs> Tools down. We're going to have to do a take two on this one. And oh. away we go. Anyway, Anyhow. let's hope for the best. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I've got full, full confidence in us today. Uh, what's been happening? Anything exciting? Any recos? Any recos? I do have a reco actually. Um, book that I read while I was away called yeah. Sunbirds by. How many books did you read while you were away, by the uh, way? 12 maybe mm. are you joking yeah. that's my that's my holiday I just that's it I lie down I read 12 I drink books. cocktails yeah about that mm. holy but jolly yep. okay so when you give a book recommendation like you're serious <laughs> really serious I'm the Margaret Pomerantz of <laughs> you are legit okay all right yep tell us about this one out of the 12 uh, so this was called Sunbirds my Mirandi re oh, rewow I don't I'm not saying that properly I'm sorry it's r-i-w-o-e and it's about um, the pre-Japanese occupation in the Dutch East Indies, so Indonesia before the Second World Ooh. War, before the Japanese occupied. I just have okay. a bit of a connection because that's where my grandfather grew up. Um, he was Dutch, but really interesting, uh, particularly if you don't know a lot about the history of that area and that time. Yeah. So we're looking at the early, uh, sorry, the late 30s, early 40s. Um, so, yeah recommend love it yeah good work yeah what about you recommend well i'm gonna keep it highbrow and recommend the robbie williams documentary oh it's on the list i'm going to see him at mount Dunedin in a couple of weeks (laughs) are you god Mm. it's good it's really Mm. good it's and it's um it's done really it's really interesting because they do it from the perspective of him 
watching all of this footage that has been taken of him over the last three decades. So mm-hmm. he's basically in his undies sitting on his bed watching a laptop and it's all the footage, but you're watching it with him. And so he kind of watches a a bit of footage from, you know, like the 90s and he pauses it and kind of goes, oh, that was a bit weird. Like I look a bit unhappy there or he can tell like stages of his life, what he's going through. And some of it's quite sad because he knows that there's a, a fall coming, like yeah. that he's about to sort of come crashing down. Um, yeah, it's super cute. And his little daughter comes in and sits with him a few times and wants to give him a cuddle and he's super cute dad. And yeah, so highly recommend. Add it to the list. Add it to the list. Exactly. Have you got a historical fact for us today? I do indeed. I do indeed. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about barbers, as in, you know, barber shop quartet. Won't do any yes. singing. It's okay. okay. Um, so did you know that there was a history and a meaning behind the red and white pole that stands outside a barber shop? So you know you'd see them, you know, yes. barbers have become a bit on trend yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah they mm. have. They have males um, grooming mm. has become a bit on trend. You Absolutely. Know? Like the moustache and the beard oil mm, and all, that, the yeah, all the things. Yeah. <laughs> all the things. So a barber shop was not always been it's not always been just for men to get a haircut or a shave. It was also used for medical procedures and bloodletting. So Ooh. what is bloodletting, you may ask? I can hear you What's asking. Bloodletting. Yes. Mm. Yes. Uh, well, it involves cutting open a vein and allowing the blood to drain. And it was a common treatment for a wide range of illnesses, anything from a sore throat to the plague, essentially. So these procedures were deemed to be menial for doctors to do themselves and therefore the local barber would just get right into it, do it himself. Bit of a shave, bit of a hidden artery. So barbers were also known as barber surgeons and performed other tasks such as pulling teeth. So we we know from our fact a couple of weeks ago that anyone could pull a teeth, uh, pull a teeth, pull a tooth. Um, They also set bones and treated other wounds. So nowadays, as you would know, you see the red and white poles outside um, outside the barber shop, and they actually represented the bandages that were used to stem the flow of blood. So the red oh. from the blood and the white from the um, bandage or the white cloth that would have cleaned oh. the wound and you know cleaned up the blood. I used to always just think it was like a candy stick. Exactly. That's what it looks like. Let's not even go into the history of the candy cat. No, I've got no idea. That's I can't. I'm not going anywhere with that. <laughs> like, what are you going to tell So by the mid-1500s, English barbers were banned from providing these surgical treatments like bloodletting, although teeth extraction was still on the cards. Uh, so it was back, back to the short back and sides and a shave for barbers after that time. So there you go. There's a bit of a dark history behind that red and white pole. Mm. Yeah, I have questions. But (laughs) uh, would that say, like, you know, that they were? Is that was that kind of like a distinctive pole that they would have put out the front of their shops to say that they do those procedures? I think so. But it was pretty common. So any old barber could really undertake that sort of work um but I suppose it sort of showed that you were genuine as well okay okay yeah so today's woman is someone you've probably heard of before but 
the story of her and her life and kind of what she was able to achieve is probably something that's not really that well known. And I came across her story while I was watching a documentary on Cary Grant, Mm -hmm. which is a really good documentary. I can't remember what streaming service it was on, but it is available at the moment. But yeah, an amazing documentary on him and kind of, you know, early Hollywood. And if you like that kind of era, I highly recommend going and watching it. So today I'm going to tell you all about the story of a woman who saved Paramount Pictures from bankruptcy. Mm. Mary Jane West, or Mae West, as she would become uh-huh. to be known, mm-hmm. was born on August 17, 1893 in Brooklyn, New York. Her mum, Matilda, or Tilly, was a corset and fashion model, and her dad, John Patrick Batlin Jack West uh, was a prize fighter who later went on to work as a special policeman and mm. later start his own private investigation agency. Now, there's rumours that special policing kind of meant something to do with the mob. But yeah. anyway, special policing with, with, with air quotes. <laughs> so May was the second eldest child of four and went on to become the eldest after her older sister Katie died in infancy. So from a very very early age, she was exposed to vaudeville and her parents uh, both loved the stage and would take her to go and see shows. She was encouraged to enter talent shows as well and she would often win. And her first performance is said to be at the age of five, bless. During the show, she was upset that the spotlight wasn't following her. <laughs> so she paused her show and stamped her feet and demanded that the light find her. And as soon as she got her spotlight, she kept going. She was five. Gee. I love it. (laughs) At the age of 14, she began performing professionally in vaudeville shows under the stage name Baby May. Her first Broadway appearance was at age 18 when she received a call from Al Jolson, who you've probably heard of, um, who asked her to be in an upcoming show called Ulla Broadway. The show unfortunately folded after only eight performances, but it was enough to get her noticed. And she was singled out and praised by a reviewer of the New York Times who said they were pleased by her grotesquerie and snappy way of singing and dancing. Ooh, grotesquery. Grotesquery. Mm. Interesting. I mean, it's, it is a compliment, but mm. <laughs> it doesn't sound like one. So she continues on doing a few Broadway shows and often playing in bottom-of-the-barrel shows, which provided great experiences for her emerging career but often didn't do too well. In 1918, she finally got her big break in the Schubert Brothers Review sometime. Her character, Mammy, danced the shimmy. I just did the shimmy there. (laughs) We're both doing the shimmy. And her photograph even appeared on an edition of the sheet music for the popular number, Everybody Shimmies Now. Which I can imagine is like, everybody dance now, but it's everybody shimmies now. Woo! So, yeah, if you don't know, a shimmy is a dance move in which the body is held still except for the shoulders, which are quickly alternated back and forth. And the bosoms. Give it a go right now. Shimmy, 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 shimmy. As well as being a performer and an entertainer, May was a prolific writer who wrote under the pen name Jane Mast. Her first play that she wrote, produced, directed and starred in was called Sex. It was in 1926 
and at the time considered extremely controversial. Mm. It played at the 63rd Street Theatre, receiving many scathing reviews due to its moral implications. The storyline is basically that May's character is a sex worker who is torn between two men, a rich man who is a bit of a dick and a middle-class man who is kind but doesn't have much to offer. It was so controversial that when the papers advertised it, they couldn't print the word sex, so they just called it That Play by Mae West. Because the play was so scandalous, there were actually two versions written and each night someone would scan the audience and keep a lookout for any high-profile members of society or policemen and depending on the audience they would either play the original version or the more toned down version and the original version was actually called the whores version oh yeah okay Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the play had a total of 375 performances until eventually the new york police department stormed the show and arrested everyone including may May was charged with obscenity and taken to Jefferson Market Court. The play, though, was extremely, extremely popular and thousands of people had already had the chance to enjoy it, including the very same policemen who were now arresting her, their wives, judges, and even members of the court. Despite this, on April 19th, 1927, she was sentenced to jail on Roosevelt Island, the official charge being corrupting the morals of society. Oh, the morals. <laughs> the morals. So Mays actually saw this as a fantastic PR opportunity. She requested a limo drive her to jail. And although she could have just paid a fine and be let off, she chose to go to prison for the publicity it would garner. While she was incarcerated, she was given special treatment. She dined with the warden and his wife, and she was allowed to keep her silk underwear mm-hmm. and ended up only serving eight days with two days off for good behaviour. Following her release, she told reporters that her experience wasn't that bad and she'd now have enough material to write 10 new shows. The media attention only enhanced her career and she was crowned the darling bad girl who had climbed climbed the ladder of success wrong by wrong. Get it? Not wrong by. Guffaw, guffaw, guffaw. Lol. I love it. Okay, she continued to write and her next play was just as controversial. It was called Drag and dealt with homosexuality. It was truly groundbreaking for its time. She was not only a woman writing about sex and sexuality, but gay sex and sexuality at that. In the play, her lead character is a closeted gay man trapped in a loveless marriage. His father is homophobic and his father-in-law was a therapist who would perform what we now know as conversion therapy. The whole thing culminates in an extravagant drag ball. So think RuPaul's Drag Race, but Mm -hmm. 100 years earlier, which is just insane that she she was doing that in the 1920s. Unbelievable. So since the 1920s, she had been an early supporter of gay rights and publicly declared against police brutality that gay men experienced. To cast the show, she actually went to the West Village and put a call out for auditions. She claims to have helped a lot of men who couldn't uh, get cast. So the show flopped and it only had about 10 performances. Oh. And she she boils it down to the audience not being grown up enough or you know, able to handle it. So knowing that it was all a bit too risque, she actually rewrote it and instead called it The Pleasure Man. 
And the lead man was now a straight man instead of a gay man, but it was still too much. And after the curtain fell on the debut performance of the new show, the entire cast was arrested. Between the late 1920s and early 1930s, she continues to write plays and all of her productions would arouse controversy. She loved that she was controversial. It meant that she stayed in the news and this often resulted in packed houses at her performances. So in 1928, she writes and stars in a play called Diamond Lil. It's about a racy, easygoing, smart lady of the 1890s and it became a Broadway hit uh, and ended up cementing her image in the public public's eye uh, and the play ran for nine months and 323 performances, wow. So, which is huge for mm. one play to run on Broadway. After a few more plays that couldn't follow the success of Diamond Lil, she accepts a short-term but very lucrative contract offer from Paramount Pictures. She's asked to perform in a feature film in Hollywood. So she goes to Hollywood, she signs the contract, which is only supposed to be for two months. It provides her with a weekly salary of $5,000 a week. That's $110,000 in today's money. Oh my God. That's huge. That is huge. Yeah, I know. And to think that that was her first feature film as well, And she hadn't done any other films. So she she'd obviously kind of cemented who she was on Broadway, but um, yeah, hadn't hadn't done any films. She requested that in her contract she was allowed to rewrite all of her lines, <laughs> and and the studio agreed. I love her. I love her. I know she's also forty years old at wow. this time. And so this is considered the veteran stage of any performer and unusually late to start a film career, especially for a woman. Despite this, she manages to keep her age ambiguous. And in 1932, she makes her film debut in Night After Night, starring George Ruft, who had suggested her for the part. She didn't like her role (laughs) at first, so she requested that she rewrite the script because it was in her contract. She was allowed to. One of several revisions she made in her first scene in Night After Night is when a hat check or a coat check girl exclaims, goodness, what beautiful diamonds. And May replies, I'm going to do my May West impersonation. Mm -hmm. Please do. Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. (laughs) (laughs) Like it? Goodness had nothing to do with it, dearie. Uh, so yeah, completely made up line and she's pretty well known for that line. She's mm. also really well known for the line, oh, why don't you come up and see me sometime? I've been practicing my Mae West impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> By this time, the Mae West persona was well and truly embedded into popular culture. Uh, if you can imagine the typical Hollywood movie star, big boobs, curves, blonde hair, red lips, she kind of was that epitome of what you you know imagine kind of she was sort of Marilyn before Marilyn was Marilyn. She was very short though, fun fact, and she had special shoes made for her. They were kind of shoes inside shoes, like oh. platform shoes, so that she could get a bit more height and compete with the tall chorus girls. She went on to negotiate, uh, renegotiate her contract with Paramount, which was now set at $300,000 a picture. So that's in those days' money. Mm. So in these days' money, 
that's probably like close to a million. Yeah. Probably more. Over, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I guess if it's, yeah. So 3000 a picture and also a share of the profits for all of her writing and rewriting services. And she made sure that she had her name on the credits as well. She also insisted on doing her own costume design. What so in 19, I know, isn't it? Amazing. She's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So in 1933, Paramount Pictures was in trouble. It hadn't had a successful movie in some time and was looking down the barrel of bankruptcy. May suggested bringing her Diamond Lil character to screen. So she rewrote the play and her character, um, her character's name was changed to Lady Lou and the movie was titled She'd Done Him Wrong. May needed a leading man. So while on the studio back lot one day, she noticed a tall man with a strong jaw. The man was an unknown actor named Cary Grant. She asked the director to call him over and the director told her that he was a nobody and that he hadn't been in, in a single picture yet. But she said to the director, Ready? get him over here. If he can talk, I'll take him. I want to know how long you've been practising that. <laughs> I've been listening and researching to so much, you know, so many things that I keep hearing it. So mm. I'm like all these lines. I keep hearing all these lines. So I'm just, I think I've got it down. Yeah. Um, this this would be one of Cary Grant's early major roles, which boosted his career. The film was a box office hit and earned an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. Um, and if you haven't seen it, you must, you must, must watch it. So the other thing, the other really interesting thing about this film is that the director was a director who hadn't, I think it was his first talkie, like so mm -hmm. when movies went from silent to, to speaking films. So for him to direct a film where people were talking and there was a script, it was a really new thing for him. So mm. he actually, um, and I can't think of the director's name right now, but he can't, he couldn't, he didn't see the importance of having a script and having to write a script because he'd never had to work with a script before. So the whole movie is basically ad-libbed and um, it's just this beautiful kind of exchange between Cary Grant and Mae West and knowing that it's all ad-libbed and that they're just sort of playing off each other just makes it kind of just even more special mm. so yeah highly recommend you go you go and watch it it's also really good because they actually yeah they talk over each other they respond really naturally to each other and to what they're saying so it's actually yeah it's it's a, it's amazing to watch so the success of the film saved Paramount from bankruptcy, grossing over $2 million, the equivalent of $46 million. Uh, I know. Lord. Paramount even named a building in her honour um, so out of should. gratitude mm. for saving the studio. Her second film with Cary Grant called I'm No Angel was also a box office hit and was the most successful of her entire screen career. She says, I was the first liberated woman. No guy was going to get the best of me. That's what I wrote all my scripts about. In the nine months after the film's release, her trademark look had been recreated many times throughout pop culture and references to Mae West could be found almost everywhere, from song lyrics of Cole Porter to murals to cartoons, even a painting by Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. By 1933, Mae West was one of the largest box office draws in the United States and by 1935, she was also the highest paid woman and the second highest paid person in the United States God. after William Randolph Hearst. Mm -hmm. 
There's no secret that she was very open about her sexuality and multiple lovers. Um, And it is said that after one of her lovers was denied entry into her apartment building for being black, she bought the entire building. You go, girl. It's my building. I (laughs) I set the rules. Mm. Uh, On July the 1st, 1934, censorship guidelines of the film industry's production code began to be enforced. As a result, her scripts were being subjected to more and more editing. Knowing this, she would often intentionally place extremely risque lines in her scripts, knowing that they would be cut by the censors. She hoped that they would then not object as much to her other less suggestive lines. Her next film was Belle of the 90s. The original title was It Ain't No Sin, but it was changed because of censorship. Mm. Despite Paramount's early objections regarding costs, West insisted the studio hire Duke Ellington and his orchestra to accompany her in the film's musical numbers. Their collaboration was a success and the classic My Old Flame, recorded by Duke Ellington, was introduced in this film. Over the next few years, the censorship laws continued to take their toll as she was continually prevented from including her best lines, which were all kind of like double entendres and, Mm -hmm. you know, had these kind of hidden meanings. Um, She was getting pressure from all sides and Paramount executives felt they had to tone down her characterisation or face further recriminations. The final film with Paramount was in 1937 called Every Day's a Holiday and performed below its goal. Censorship had made her sexually suggestive brand of humour that was what made her a star impossible for the studios to distribute. She, alongside other stellar performers, were put on a list of actors called the Box Office Poison by the Independent Theatre Owners Association. Others on the list were Greta Garbo, Joan Crawford, Marlene Dietrich, Fred Astaire, Catherine Hepburn, Um, The list was published in The Hollywood Reporter and many producers and studios would steer clear of these actors because of the controversy. Despite this, the producer David O. Selznick offered May the role of the sage Madame Belle Watling in Gone with the Wind. She ended up turning it down, claiming it was too small for an established star and that she would need to rewrite all of her lines to suit her own persona. (laughs) In In 1943, she was approached by actor, director and friend Gregory Ratoff, who pleaded with her to be in his film, claiming that he would go bankrupt if she didn't help him. The movie was called The Heat Is On and it was scrutinised by the censors and it was uh, requested they raise the necklines of their costumes and clean up the double entendres. This was the only film she wasn't allowed to write her own dialogue and, as a result, the film flopped. (laughs) Distraught after another flop with The Heat Is On and years of struggling with the strict censorship laws, she would not attempt another film role for the next quarter century. Instead, she turned to a successful and record-breaking career in top nightclubs, Las Vegas, and a return back to Broadway, where she was allowed, even welcomed, to be herself. She even tries her hand at radio for a bit, appearing as herself in sketches. In one show with a ventriloquist, she flirted with the dummy with her usual wit and sexual references. But she referred to the dummy as all wood and a yard long and commented, Charles, I remember our last date and have the splinters to prove it. (laughs) (laughs) As a result, she was now on the verge of also being banned from radio. 
another risque appearance on NBC radio where she was involved in an Adam and Eve skit. Conservative religious groups were not happy and the groups reportedly warned the sponsor of the program that they would protest her appearance. NBC radio used her as a scapegoat and banned her and the mention of her name from their stations. They claimed it was not the content of the skit, but her tonal inflections that gave it the controversial context, acting as though they had hired May knowing nothing of her previous work, nor had any idea of how she would deliver the lines that were written for her. In the 1950s, West starred in her own Las Vegas stage show at the newly opened Sahara Hotel, singing while surrounded by beefy oiled up bodybuilders. The show apparently uh, stood Las Vegas on its head. She wanted to have a show for women, not just for men. She says, men come to see me, but I also give the women something to see, wall-to-wall men. One of these men would actually go on to become her husband. Right up until she dies, he was 30 years her junior. Oh. So she's still had it going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. During this time, although she was having a very successful Las Vegas career, she was still being offered movie roles, even alongside the likes of Frank Sinatra and Elvis Presley, but she turned them all down knowing that she wouldn't be allowed to be her full self. She continues to make art, perform, write, and even records and releases uh, some music right up until her 70s. At age 84, she makes a return to the screen in a movie called Sexette, directed by Ken Hughes. The movie's apparently bonkers and stars May as a woman with many lovers. And a couple of her lovers, Ringo Starr, Random, and even Alice Cooper. Again, Random. Yep. Despite the daily problems, May was determined to see the film through. At 84, her now failing eyesight made navigating around the set difficult, but she made it through the filming, a tribute to her self-confidence, remarkable endurance and stature as a self-created star 67 years after her Broadway debut in 1911 at the age of 18. Mm -hmm. Time magazine wrote an article um, on her entitled, At 84, May West is still May West. The film inevitably bombs but becomes a cult classic and is still played in gay bars all around the world. May West's personal life was marked by unconventional relationships. She married in 1911 at the age of 17 but kept the marriage a secret until a filing clerk discovered the certificate. She initially denied the union but later admitted to it. The couple never lived together and then she later got a divorce uh, soon after. In 1913, she met a guy called Guido and their deep affair possibly led to a marriage in 1914 and it's also claimed that she underwent an abortion as a as advised by her mother that left her infertile. May is said to have humorously remarked, marriage is a great institution. I'm not ready for an institution. (laughs) Or marriage is a great institution. I'm not ready for an institution. (laughs) May West died in 1980 at the age of 87 after having a stroke. For her contribution to the film industry, Mae West has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and for her contributions as a stage actor in the theatre world, she was inducted into the American Theatre Hall of Fame. Right up until her death, she continued to exude sexuality and was never ashamed of it. Also, fun fact, in 1967, her likeness was used on the front cover of the Beatles album Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Mm -hmm. When approached for permission, she initially refused and asked, what would I be doing in a Lonely Hearts Club? (laughs) 
She changed her mind after the band wrote her a personal letter declaring themselves great fans. And that is the story of Mae West, a woman celebrated for her bold, provocative performances and witty one-liners that challenged societal norms of her time. She fearlessly navigated censorship challenges, pushing boundaries and paving the way for future generations of female performers. The end. Well done, May. Isn't that extraordinary? Yeah. You know, and I bet you never knew that Paramount Pictures was suffering and a woman, of course, Mm. saved the day. Saved the day. That was amazing. Amazing. Uh, yeah. hmm, thank you. I yep. went out on a bang. That's my last episode. Yes. Season. And you will be back next week. I will for the lucky last final. of the season. Can't wait to be back in your ears then. Do all the things like subscribe and we will um, look forward to chatting with you next week. See you then. Bye. Bye. Bye.